Hello and welcome to the Mike Dominic Show. It is the 15th of June. I am, as always, Mike Dominic. Today we have an interesting guest, uh, Sean McBride. He's a West Point graduate Army veteran who transitioned out of the military and into you know, the engaging world of software development. Good talk about transitioning folks and also, you know, the, you know, the continuing saga of are boot camps good, are boot camps bad? You know, what's the deal with boot camps? If you're a Seinfeld fan, you might know what I'm talking about. So I, I think it's a good one, particularly if you're either in the military or thinking of getting out or you're trying to, you know, even if you're not, if you're a thinking about going to a boot camp, how to maybe supplement some of the knowledge gaps that you might end up with. Good talk all around. We have a little bit of Rust fun too, because I know everybody's favorite language is Rust these days. Uh, yeah, so as always, we're brought to you by The Mad Botter, my software consulting company. We do have bandwidth available in July for iOS development and Python development. If you need some work done, let us know. Yeah, and uh, I'm at Dumanuko on Twitter. Here's Sean. Sean McBride, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Michael? I'm good. Now, let me tell you, you have the most interesting LinkedIn profile I've seen in a long time. You are apparently a samurai, a software samurai. I am. Yeah. So I've, I've studied the art of the Bushido code and my website is Bushido.codes. If anyone is curious about checking out any of my thoughts about the software industry. But I mean, the, the reason that I've accepted that as my handle is I'm a military veteran that's transitioned into software development. And so sometimes I like I'm interested in military history, things like that, and also software development. Which uh, which branch? So I was in the army. I'm actually a West Point graduate, also. Oh, very nice. Yeah. So, um, anything you want to tell us about the Stargate, real quick, or no? Probably not. <laughs> yeah, that's top secret. Sorry. Damn. I, I almost got him. I almost got him, and I'll see you guys in Leavenworth. Uh, right. All right, cool. So, so you transitioned out of the army mm-hmm. and into software. Into software. (laughs) Yeah. So I actually, my transition out of the army was a little bit unusual. So you may not be aware of this, but when folks train to become a pilot, they have to go through significant kind of medical testing and stuff like that. Because of course you got to have like pretty like good health fitness and stuff to be able to fly. So when I was going through my flight training, I actually had some medical issues come up. And so in 2008 and 2009, the army let me know, you know, Sean, your dream of flying, uh, attack helicopters. Sorry, that's not going to work out. And so I actually was was medically discharged in December of 2008, which I'm sure you can remember was a wonderful time in the global economy. Yeah, not, not the best time. <laughs> yeah. So my transition was somewhat rocky, I would say. I basically got out. I packed up all my stuff. I moved back in with my parents. And then I had to start thinking creatively about what I wanted to do next. I had really been interested in IT. I did like desktop support and stuff like that as a high school student. So I started, you know, re-getting into my CompTIA books and things like that, getting more into coding from that point. And eventually that landed me back into software. But actually, I mean, it was kind of a roundabout way because I ended up taking a job with IBM working on legacy mainframes. Oh boy, that's that's a blast from the distant past. Right. Yeah. Big iron. So I um, worked with a, a number of Pretty large mainframe shops, kind of as a consultant, uh, working at basically Mayo Clinic, State of Illinois, and some. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure how much exposure you've had to legacy systems. I imagine a good bit now that you you do government contracting and stuff now. But some of those systems are are just ancient. Uh, yeah. One of the systems I was working with was a Illinois State Police system, and it was written in mainframe assembly. Boy. And 
It's basically the system that was on that on the Blues Brothers movie. Like I, I don't know if you can recall, but at one point they they mentioned what is it the scamods? So they they got mapped on scamods. They had like a mainframe terminal and the police thing right before their big car oh, chase. Right, right, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so yeah, so that was the kind of stuff that I worked on, like right getting out of the army, basically. Now, so what was the practical steps in the tra- uh, transition? I know you did some additional education. I, you did yep. a boot camp as well, right? Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, so I'm actually one of the the few folks that have done kind of both the traditional education and the the boot camp path. So I'm happy to talk about that a little bit more. There's a trade yeah, off and a balance there. But the issue is, like, when I first got out in 2008 and was transitioning in 2009, like all that boot camp stuff didn't exist yet. So basically, the closest thing that was available was this thing called the O'Reilly School of Technology, oh, where yeah. you could you could do these distance learning things and Java programming. And so I did some of those those courses, and I, w- yeah. I would say that's roughly equivalent to like I guess Udacity now. I, I guess. Yeah, it was like it, it was based off I think the co- old fashioned correspondence courses, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So like they send you the VHS tape or something, and you- <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> yeah. So I I did some continuing education. I actually got a mentor, a fellow named Ray Trigstad, who is a a Naval Academy graduate and a helicopter pilot. And I don't know if you're familiar cool. with the rivalry between Army and Navy, but it can be pretty fierce. So the fact that he was able yes. to like take pity on me and help me with my transition just shows what a great guy he is. See, that's, yeah. uh, I mean, I, as long as Navy wins the football game and I do that, just <laughs> I do it just to aggravate my father-in-law and father who are both Army vets. I'm like, well, it's, it's a, oh, of course, Army usually wins and I lose the bet. But anyway, <laughs> all right. So you're just out. It's 2008. The economy's booming. It's fantastic, right? <laughs> right. Right. So you're going through this O'Reilly program. Are you simultaneously doing the traditional education or was it you did, you know, one than the other? So I did the O'Reilly training kind of as a a quick test to see, hey, is this really going to stick for me? Is this going to work? Because I I did some software development at West Point actually using ADA. I don't know if you're familiar with that language at all. I've heard Um, of it. I've never done anything with it, but I, yeah. yeah. It's like only the Pentagon uses it basically. Well, I think maybe like Boeing or something like that. Maybe like the metro system in Berlin or something random like that. But yeah, there's some um, German heavy iron that runs it, I am sure. Call right. Sam, I'll tell you. <laughs> yeah, uh, but it's kind of rust before rust is how I would describe that. But so I, I did the, the the Java programming course, and then I basically had a master's program through that Ray Trigstad introduced me with, which is basically information technology centric. And that's, that's what led to the IBM job. Interesting. Okay, yeah. so... I mean, without a question I've been getting for years, uh, particularly from like young people and actually a few a few other vets who are transitioning out. How valuable are these boot camp courses, in your opinion? Yeah. So I, I'm active in Operation Code, a nonprofit that, that is very active helping transitioning service members and military spouses learn to code, get jobs and contribute to open source. I'll post the link on that if you want to learn more about Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yeah. But I've had at this point probably 10 or so mentees that I've guided through the process and they've been able to get their first jobs. And so I actually think uh, coding boot camps are an incredibly productive and valuable program for the right type of personality. And I just happen to think that something that's called a coding boot camp is kind of a good model for someone that went through like a military boot camp. They usually have that same sort of personality type. So if you have kind of the intensity and the intestinal fortitude to be able to really just push through a learning a lot within three, four months, I think it, it can be really powerful and economically transforming f- 
people's lives. That said, uh, going through traditional education and learning, you know, CS fundamentals, algorithms, data structures, et cetera, that's invaluable. And so it's kind of like if you go through the boot camp training program, you sort of accumulated some knowledge debt that you have to kind of pay down over the next five to 10 years in your in your career. And I think that's kind of the big unanswered question is just how, like how do we as an industry and we as more experienced folks help guide people to do continuing education and give back as software engineers at a senior level. Right. I, I think that's interesting. You mentioned the knowledge that because I'm you know, I'm self-taught the bad old way before these boot, just like you, before the boot camps really existed. Mm-hmm. Yep. And one of the, you know, things is you come in with a lot of practical experience the first couple of years, but like you have no idea how to like, you know, do bitwise uh, logic, right? Or anything like <laughs> right. that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so this is something I've struggled with a lot, particularly hiring people. One, I, I, I kind of have seen like huge variations in quality of the boot camps themselves. Absolutely. Yeah. But also, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with Rob Connery. He's a kind of senior .NET developer. He wrote a book called, the, I think it's the Imposter's Handbook. And I'll, I'll link it in the show notes. It is specifically targeted for what you say, filling that gap of, you know, you're a self-taught, you're a bootcamp coder. Here's all the algorithms and data structures nobody ever bothered to teach you, right? Mm-hmm. So do you think something like, like, is it valuable? You know, let's say we have, you know, Jimmy is a bootcamp grad. He's looking to get into the field, but he feels a little... You know, he knows there's gaps. Should he immediately jump into something like that or should he just kind of press on? I mean, I think like definitely after getting the first job, like wait a year or something like that, get your life together. Because I mean, going through a coding bootcamp program, see, it's pretty burnout inducing. So just getting your, your life in order. If you have taken on debt and stuff to be able to pay for the coding bootcamp, being able to pay that down. And then once that once all that sort of stuff is taken care of, then I think it's time to go back and start dealing with some of the some of the computer science algorithms, data structures and stuff. But I don't think it's necessarily it's critical, but you don't need to do it immediately. That's what gotcha. I would say, I guess. It's important, but not urgent, basically. Yes, exactly. But I absolutely think those sorts of books are are wonderful. And I think we need more of those sorts of things. So I've I've actually been recently taking a like a Udemy course on C programming and it's good, but it still kind of assumes a lot of computer science knowledge. So I just feel like there's like, we really need folks that are able to come out and build specialized course offerings that kind of say, Hey, Mr. Coding Bootcamp graduate, here's, here's the bridge piece for systems programming, for functional programming, for advanced algorithms and data structures and things like that. Interesting. So, okay. I derailed you. I'm sorry. So you you did the O'Reilly course. What's next? Yeah. So then I was working at IBM on mainframe systems, including awesome. that that Illinois State Police SCMODS type system. And a lot of it was, you know, customer facing consulting type stuff with light development. Some companies have this kind of role, like for deployed software engineers, like kind of what Palantir terms it. But from there, basically, I was able to, to slowly pivot my career in more of a direction towards software development. I was able to move to a move across the country from Chicago to Washington DC to join the Washington System Center, which was a which is kind of a systems center of excellence at IBM where they focus on a particular type of software. And then I did basically desktop Java development for modernizing kind of mainframe workflows. So instead of going through a 3270 green screen to configure your system and stand up basically Linux virtual machines, what I was working on. 
you then have kind of something more like a VMware vCenter type desktop application. And it's it's just it's a tricky problem to be able to kind of map the the UI UX issues with these really technically complex legacy systems. So that's interesting. So when you say desktop, what was it automation? Well, it was a it was basically a legacy thick client Java desktop application. Oh, so. okay. okay. <laughs> yeah. 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 Right. Okay. I was trying to think. I'm trying to think. What the hell, what the hell could that be? Okay. I get you now. Which seems kind of crazy to all of us today, but compared to like a 3270 green screen terminal, it's major progress. <laughs> yeah. But you know what? You got. It. We did a lot of things in the past that. I just want to say ActiveX and Java applets, right? Like, <laughs> right. Yeah. At the time, they made a lot of sense. Now, looking back, you know, what is it? Your children always judge you harshly, right? Yeah, I have a entire portfolio of Java applets that I don't even know how to run anymore, and they're and they're just nonsensical things like an animated Cartman. I think nice, <laughs> so, but nice. Yeah, it's it's okay. I'm I'm happy if people don't see that stuff. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's perfectly fine. All right, so where are you now? Mm-hmm. So right now I am doing research at George Washington University. I'm Very working cool. on basically system software. So I do a lot of low level C and some C++ development, really mostly C for everything I do in the research lab. And I'm working on a, a function as a service serverless solution for, for the edge, basically. So my oh, the software I'm working on compiles into a really tight binary. You run it on your... Raspberry Pi, potentially a low-powered or Raspberry Pi type system. And then you dispatch all your functions as a service to it. And the functions are actually compiled to WebAssembly too. So that's that's kind of neat. Interesting. Yeah. How um, are you finding the performance of the WebAssembly on the Pis? So it, it actually works, works really great. So there's a little bit of slowdown with just executing the raw WebAssembly because it's it's a virtual machine, but having that virtual machine actually allows you to make up for the performance differences in a couple of ways. Like, so normally when you run a run third-party code, you have to sandbox it. And one way that that can be done is through like a, a process. So instead of having a traditional process, which is really expensive now with WebAssembly, within a single process, you can run, you know, eight, nine, 10, or more WebAssembly virtual machines. And so that ends up basically making up for that performance difference with um, running the virtual machine. So it's it's actually quite effective. And I, I think there's going to be a lot more advances around that in the future. Interesting. So just to kind of pivot on you a little bit, yeah. I know you love Rust, right? Yeah. So I've, uh, I've been very enthusiastically in the active in the Rust community for a couple of years now. But I, I have to say, I've had a little bit of a crisis of faith like in the past oh, six no. months or so. And the main reason for that is as I get closer to thinking about my next job and I start to think, boy, wouldn't it be great to get paid to write Rust? You know, then you start looking at what jobs are available and, you know, you just don't see many Rust jobs out there. That's right. And so as much as I really like the bar checker and affine types and a lot of the really cool things that that Rust programming gives you. I'm actually going through a another a book called the C++ Crash Course, and it's by another West Pointer called or named uh, Josh Lospinozo. And it's kind of like trying to write the Rust programming language book, but for C++. And that's interesting to even think about how one even would try to attempt to do that. But yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's, it's, 
it's a weird place right now for the Rust programming language community. Like there's so much activity and so much excitement and enthusiasm in open source. And in particular with taking an existing C or C++ thing and rewriting in Rust, but turning that to something that you can like pay your bills with, it's just kind of an unanswered question. Yeah. So I also really like Rust and I am just completely incapable of selling it to people for reasons I don't understand. My and I'm wondering if this is your feeling. It just hasn't found its killer application, right? Like Ruby, for example, has Rails, right? That really brought it to the fore. Java had the seductive lie that you could actually do cross-platform. We're going back to the 90s for that one, but you get my point. Mm-hmm. Where C Sharp had all things Windows, then ASP. Rust, you know, I think about at least the ways I've used Rust, and I think it's safer. Like literally, you know, like Rust is all about safety, right? But they're all, you know, for instance, something I did a couple, I think it was last year, no, about six months ago, was processing. I think there's a couple of them. <laughs> yeah, no, the one, in, yeah, I know. It's, um, it's I'm going to be, you know, I can't remember. But anyway, yeah, because I, I ported it to Mac. But like you could, it's driving me crazy. It's, it's a 3D model format. I can't remember the name of it. Someone will correct me in the, in the comments in the Twitter. But like all of I could have easily accomplished that in C++, right? Because all I was doing mm-hmm. was I had a Ruby application and Ruby was just like dog slow at, at doing that, obviously. Where Rust is faster, right? It just it just is. Yeah. But C++ is faster and like there are more libraries and it's more supported. And I think that support makes it more acceptable to a lot of organizations. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's interesting, but like I guess in terms of the third-party module piece, since Rust does have that cargo stuff, like I mean, your out-of-box programming experience is just way better than C or C++. I mean, you sure. can get there. It just takes it takes a lot of work. It's kind of like the JavaScript ecosystem where you have to bolt on ten million tools, <laughs> and then you can get something kind of sane. And yeah, so I I guess like I if. Rust were to get really popular, I think it would be because the cargo ecosystem maybe starts to just become so big and with so so many high quality modules that you can trust that then that gives you that productivity that you can sell to your customers. But yeah, I I mean, in terms of safety, like other than maybe the Pentagon sometimes, like I don't think anyone really buys safety, unfortunately. No, people buy quick and fast. Yeah, exactly. That's, yeah, that's that's why you end up running a lot of Python like I am. <laughs> uh, <laughs> quick and dirty. Yeah. Doesn't matter. Get it done. Yeah. Uh, so fun fact, did you know that energy wise, if you write an algorithm in C and an algorithm in Python, the Python version takes 76 times as much energy? I saw that. I think you posted that somewhere because I saw it on. <laughs> yeah, that's that's not great. But, <laughs> yeah. So two questions I always finish up with. What should I have asked you that I didn't? Hmm. <laughs> that is a really tricky one. So th- yeah, that's a, that's a really, really, really tricky question. That's kind of meta too. So I, I guess, let's see, we talked about education. We talked about training. We talked a little bit about advice for coding bootcamp folks. I mean, I guess maybe the missing part would be if you are a experienced software engineer, how can you get involved with helping veterans and military spouses get into coding, I guess? Sure. How can you do that? Yeah. So there's a couple of uh, really great organizations. The The main one that I've been most involved with is Operation Code. And so, like I said, I'm going to paste the link to Operation Code in there. Everyone is free to join. It's a registered nonprofit. And 
basically we're looking for folks that are able and willing to give just career advice to do simple things like resume reviews to help with you know computer science coding problems and we have just tons and tons of members in pretty much every single programming language community so i highly highly encourage folks to consider getting involved and of course like they also take financial tax deductible financial donations but usually like money doesn't do as much as kind of volunteer work and mentorship in my experience i guess right. yeah so that that would be my recommendation for that Perfect. So the second question is, what is your um, your kind of workstation tool chain look like? So that could be like, you know, specific hardware, OS, IDEs, whatever. Yeah, yeah. So apologies to any freedom penguins out there, but I'm very active in the WSL2 community. I run a pretty beefy, basically a gaming desktop with a, a Ryzen 3800X, 32 gigs of RAM, um, running the the latest stock Ubuntu, which I guess also is a reason the Freedom Penguins wouldn't like me. But <laughs> and then in terms of uh, developer stuff, I'm I'm pretty much all in on VS Code these days. And just it's like if you use WSL, VS Code has so many great plugins that make that just super easy. And yeah, so I do C, C Rust. I've done Go, Java, and all that through VS Code, and it's it's been able to handle everything. And as long as you have crazy amounts of RAM, you're okay. <laughs> there are very few computer science problems you can't solve with more RAM. I'm just saying, right? Yeah, just, right. Just really. memoize all the results and just toss it into a big, I don't know. Right. Big it's, like, it's, like a Rails, it's like a Rails application. You could rewrite this part in C++, or you could just upgrade your uh, VPS. <laughs> Right, exactly, exactly. So uh, when you said Ubuntu, are, is that the Ubuntu flavor of WSL or is there is it like a dual boot situation? Okay, yeah. So so I'll, I'll make a confession here then. So normally I do do WSL2, but okay. since I've been doing WSL2 and then WSL before that for a couple of years, occasionally there's some situations where I kind of find that I need the to actually be able to do a boot. So like the, the thing where that's coming up now is like I can do all my development for my serverless software and I can do all my functional testing and that's all good. But when I really want to do performance testing, just having all that additional virtualization and, you know, Microsoft magic, it's just yeah. kind of, it's tough to be able to do that. So then I go over to the the dedicated partition and do that. And it's not honestly not like a great solution because... It's tough to maintain disparate environments. Like I have lots of dot files and scripts for that sorts of stuff, but it's just tedious and difficult. So, I mean, I, I guess like if you're a, a desktop Linux user and you're happy there and you have all the great desktop applications and you don't game, I guess, I mean, there's advantages there too. So I like it. Yep. That's nothing wrong with that. All right, Sean, thank you for coming on. Michael, thank you for this chat. It's great. It was great. Hope to hear from you soon. Yep. Thank you. Bye.